Father, we have lifted our voices in songs of worship and praise. And Lord, I ask that you would bless us now as we go to your word, that you would open up our hearts to be blessed by you, to give us a sure and a steady hope, to teach us to store our treasures in heaven where nothing can touch them. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to rejoice in the hope that you've given us in Christ right now as we listen to your holy word. And I pray that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I go to my text this morning, I want to invite you to read a passage from Matthew's gospel with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. So whether you're using a phone or a paper Bible, I want to encourage you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 6. This is an Perhaps one of the most famous passages of the Bible, it's a a long sermon that Jesus himself delivered. One of my passions as a preacher is to demonstrate how God says the same thing over and over again everywhere in Scripture, and how all of Scripture testifies together about what God has taught us. And so before I preach on my passage from 1 Timothy, I want to show you a passage in Matthew's Gospel that has the same themes and the same truth expressed in the words of Christ. And so Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin in verse 19, and these are the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles or the non-believers seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
If you want to leave your finger there, I, I want to reference this passage a few times throughout the message that I'm going to preach. And again, just demonstrate how the things that Paul is telling Timothy that are true for him as a young pastor and for his church in Ephesus are the same things that Jesus says to every believer and that Jesus would say to us today. So I'm preaching from 1 Timothy chapter or, yes, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17. Uh, this is going to be my final message in the book. I believe it's a helpful book as we seek to understand how God has designed the church to be run. And Paul closes the book with some specific instructions to Timothy that at first glance, they might not seem related, but in fact, they are. If you're asking me the question, Pastor, what is the single point of this message? The point of this message is to put your hope in heaven. The point of this message is not to badmouth earthly goods, which God has given us to enjoy, but instead to remind you of earthly blessings that God has promised to all who place their faith and hope in Christ. See, the Bible teaches that the real problem of humanity is not a lack of education. It's not a lack of wealth. It's not poverty. It's, it's not even disease. The real problem that humanity has is that because of our sins, we are separated from God. And that unless we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we will be cut off from God for eternity. But the hope is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so often we get distracted by the things of this life that cause deep pain and fear. And I think what Jesus would say, that very often our faith is small. He says, oh, you have little faith. We worry about clothing and shelter and food, which are all basic human needs. But Jesus says that he will supply our every need. And our first and our greatest need is to know that our sins are forgiven and that we are right with God. And so the point of this message is to remind you of the hope of heaven. And before I go any further, I just ask, if you're not sure that you have that hope, would you talk to me today? Would you, would you say, I want to know for sure that I can have this issue settled with the Lord? Uh, I'll remind you at the end of this message, but I want to say that everything I'm about to say is, in some sense, pointless unless you are confident that Jesus is your Savior. That's the first and the greatest need. And as Paul gives some instructions to Timothy, he's going to say, guard this deposit. And this is what he's talking about. Make sure that you hold the truth of the gospel precious, that our sins are forgiven and our hope in heaven is secure. That is essential. And to begin with, I want to point you to what he says about earthly riches. So, as I go to the passage in 1 Timothy 6, I was talking to a couple of people this week and asking for examples of certain investments that went bad. And you know what I discovered? Almost everything you can talk about is maybe a tiny bit boring or needs way too much explanation. Um, recently, there was a company called Theranos. I don't know if, if any of you have heard of it. Um, it, it was run by a young woman who was purported to be like the next Steve Jobs. Okay, Steve Jobs is a genius. He invents a thing that no one knew they needed or wanted and got enormously rich selling us 
iPads and Apple computers and iPhones, and who knew back in the 90s that you would ever want a computer in your pocket all the time? Nobody. Well, that's why Steve Jobs is rich, because he figured out that he could create this thing that everyone would have, and probably 95% of Americans walk around with some form of that in their pocket. So everybody's looking for, like, who's the next Steve Jobs? Who's going to create something that we didn't know that we needed and all of a sudden make us all fabulously wealthy? Well, some people thought it was through this company, Theranos. And there's a young woman, she's actually my age, she's on trial right now because all of their hopes turned out to be based on a lie. And now the question is, was she a willful liar or was she duped? And it's a crazy thing. They thought she was the next Steve Jobs. She even wore black turtlenecks. You just looked at her and went, oh, man, that, that, that looks like she's trying to be like the next up and coming. And, and the company was supposed to make cheap, affordable tests for a number of different medical illnesses. So instead of going to a doctor and getting stabbed by a needle and giving a gallon of blood, you could order this test in the mail and they would send you a little needle and you'd prick your finger and that's all. You just give them a little finger prick and send it in and they would give you your results and they promised that it was accurate and cheap. So instead of paying enormous amounts at your doctor, you could at home have accurate, cheap, almost painless medical testing and the problem was, it didn't work. It, it was actually completely false. And they had millions of dollars invested. And for a little while, a few people got enormously rich. And then all of a sudden, it became impossible to maintain the lie. And overnight, it was completely worthless. Now, wasn't that slightly boring? Okay, let, let me try again. Here's one that hits closer to home for almost everybody. Who bought a house in 2007? Okay, there's a, there's, a famous, there's a famous housing crash that happens in 2008. It took over 10 years for the market to recover. Everyone, I, mean, I remember growing up listening to Larry Burkett on the radio. Larry Burkett, for those of you who never heard of him, uh, he, he was the guy that was giving financial advice that was conservative and cautious and careful. Larry Burkett was not the guy that was like, hey, all you got to do to get rich is do this. He was like, no, you need to work hard. You need to be careful. You need to save. You need to be careful what you do with your money. Be wise. Be biblical. And one of the things Larry Burkett said is, a house is a safe investment. It is good for most people. And people, man, a house is a safe investment. It's been true forever. Houses never lose value. They always rise in value, right? And so many people continued buying, and they were building like gangbusters and going crazy. And then all of a sudden the bottom fell out, and this sure great investment ended up being next to worthless, or in some cases, literally worthless. You had people lose their homes. You had people have to go back to renting. And so a sure and a certain thing all of a sudden was not a sure and a certain thing. And, and this is not a new problem. Uh, there was a stock market panic in 1907, Everybody's familiar with the stock market crash of 1929 and, and the Great Depression and people committing suicide and, and jumping out of buildings and the poverty that resulted for years following that stock market crash. Some of you might remember the craziness of the 1970s and, and rationing and long lines at gas stations and, and high 10% unemployment. Uh, you might think of... 1987, which was known as Black Monday when the market crashed again, or you might think of 2000 with the dot-com bubble bursting. Man, everybody was super excited about computers, and, and, and it all seemed like it would never lose value until all of a sudden it did. 
And so what I want to drive home right now is whether it's a goofy startup company that promises to give you quick wealth or whether it's something that's supposed to be stable like a home, the reality is our earthly riches are not very secure. I know people that believe gold, man, gold, like you can touch it. It's, it's tangible. But you know what you can't do with gold? You can't eat it. At the end of the day, I don't care what you do with your money. There's a scenario where it will be absolutely worthless. And so you might think that most of this message is just going to be bashing on earthly wealth. And what you should really do is be like a monk and put all in and enjoy the spiritual promises of heaven. And that's actually not what the Bible says at all. Uh, The Bible says that there are good and bad things about earthly riches. And believer in Jesus, be wise. Be wise. What you do with your money matters. The context of the passage I'm going to preach, earlier in chapter 6, Paul has warned Timothy, he said, look, people that love money and chase after it, they end up piercing themselves with many pangs. If money is your God, it is a God that will destroy you. But that doesn't mean that money itself is evil. The Bible doesn't say money is evil. It says it is a root of all kinds of evils. And actually, it says the love of money is the root, not the money itself. So Christians believe two things, that the things of earth will perish. Nothing improves with time. Nothing improves with time. Instead, it rots, it breaks, it weakens. So the things of earth one day will perish. But the second thing is that God created a world that is good. Yes, it's fallen. Yes, it's broken. But it's also good. And so the good things that God had created are to be received with thanksgiving. So my point this morning, the first point to make, is that earthly riches are both good and bad. And you can see this in verse 17 when Paul gives some instructions about how to pastor those who have some material wealth. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, the danger of riches is partly a sort of pride that says, I have worked for this in my own strength, and I have the ability to meet my own needs, and I have the ability to provide for the needs of my family and even be generous with those who are around me. Look at me. And Paul says that is foolish for at least two reasons. Partly because the earthly riches that we've prided ourselves in are themselves uncertain. So when the market crashes, when Theranos is shown to be a a worthless startup with no real technology, the uncertainty of riches is exposed. But for a while... We can seem as if we are smart enough and strong enough to provide for ourselves. And Paul calls that haughty. It is an empty kind of pride. 
that does not recognize God is the source of your strength, God is the source of your wisdom, God will provide your needs even after the market crashes in 2008. I know a guy that, that worked in the mortgage writing business and lost everything. He actually, he had to leave his home. Uh, he ended up working for Walmart after making six figures in the mortgage writing business. He had to leave the business because there was no business after 2008. And when I talked to him a couple of years ago when I was preaching through Philippians, he described how God again and again humbled him and met his needs as a family, provided them places to stay, provided them with money for food and clothing, provided them with opportunities for their kids to go to college. And so the uncertainty of his wealth was totally exposed and his pride was totally destroyed. What he discovered was God was faithful. God was faithful. And so in his humility, he discovered something that was firmer and stronger than uncertain wealth. Now, one of the things that we've got to wrestle with as we think through this is who are the rich, okay? Uh, When he says, as for the rich in this present age, usually we think of people who are richer than us, right? I, I don't, if I took a poll here and I said, guys, who here is rich? Uh, okay, I've got one. We've got, if you need money, we know who to go to. Um, right? There is a difference between being rich and being wealthy. One of the dangers of this passage, though, is that you could read it in such a way that it doesn't apply to anyone. Certainly not me. I'm not rich, right? Um, and what I want to suggest is that regardless of how much money you have, you can still be proud. It's possible to be poor and proud, to not accept help, to not trust other people. Um, It's not so much about how many dollars are in your bank account. It's about where is your hope? Where is your trust? And so as Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, yes, I think he probably had some specific people in mind at the church in Ephesus. He might have had some business owners in mind. And he certainly would not be talking about those who lived as slaves. If you're a slave, you're not rich. So there were some specific people. But as I preach it to our congregation today, there are those of you who have a little more money, and there are those of you who have a little less. And what I want to say is I think there's something in this passage for everyone here. When Jesus teaches us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, that's something that you can do no matter how poor you are. And when he warns you against trusting in earthly riches, those who lack money very often trust in earthly riches and they're grieving the fact that they don't have it. Their hope is in something they lack. If only I made this much money, if only I had this much in my bank account, if only I could get this bill paid, then I would be secure. And that is the same spiritual problem that someone who's wealthy has. They're trusting in themselves. The person who lacks money is trusting in something they don't have and acting as if they had it. Then they would be happy. Then they would be safe. Then they would be secure. And what I want to say to all of us is our hope and our security does not come from material wealth. Our hope and our security comes from God who loved us so much that he gave us his son to promise us forgiveness of sins and all of our needs and eternity with him in heaven. So your hope is in Christ no matter what your bank account says. 
Do not be proud, either thinking you can provide for yourself, and do not be tempted to believe that if you got the dream job or if you came into some money, then your anxiety would go away. It won't. You'll find different things to be anxious about. You'll find different things to long for. The only cure for your anxiety and fear is knowing your Father and trusting His provision for you. So, Earthly riches, I've majored on the bad, but my first point here is actually the good and the bad. And Paul does not say that money itself is evil or owning a business or a home is a symptom of pride. There are humble business owners who are very wealthy and are radically generous. Paul doesn't say, as for the rich in this present age, command them to give away their riches. That's not here. Instead, he says, Teach them to be humble and recognize that God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. At the beginning of chapter four, he's talked a little bit about people that commanded Christians not to eat and drink certain things. And he said, don't don't do that. God gives us good things to enjoy. And here when he's talking about earthly riches, he's saying, don't condemn someone that God has blessed with things. Instead, recognize God is the one who gave it to them. And in a moment, he's going to talk about how to invest your earthly wealth into eternal treasure. I'll get that's That's point two. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But for a moment, I want to pause and reflect on the fact that God didn't just give us this stuff so that we could give it all away and take vows of poverty. He also gave it to us to enjoy. So sometimes, set aside time to celebrate God's goodness. I I love Christmas time as an occasion to regularly set aside time to feast on good food, or Thanksgiving is even closer. We're going to eat some good food. Why? Not just because we're gluttons. Hopefully, we're not gluttons but because God is good and he's given us good things to enjoy. Feasting is an opportunity to say, the Father loves us and provides for us. And so we're going to take some time, and yes, it's good to care for the poor, and we will do that, but it's also good to recognize God has made a great world, and he loves us, and part of the joy of that is enjoying his good gifts whether it's creating beautiful art, building a home, or whether it's eating good food, he has richly blessed us with all things to enjoy. So Christians rightly enjoy God's good gifts. Let me say that again. Christians rightly enjoy God's good gifts. If you have someone that always teaches you that you need to just give your stuff away, that's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. Like the prosperity gospel comes and says, God has promised to make you happy and wealthy, and that's not true. God may take away all of your stuff to teach you to depend on him and that he's a good giver. But the opposite is the things of this earth are evil and you need to get them out of your life. Well, that's not true either. Christianity is this strange mixture that says God has given us good things to enjoy, so enjoy them. But how do you keep good enjoyment from becoming sinful? There is a level where you can be greedy and store up for yourselves treasures on earth, just as Jesus condemned. How do you keep from doing that? Well, that's point two. So point one is earthly riches, good and bad. 
The bad is that they're uncertain and they will vanish. The good is that they are blessings from God to be enjoyed. So don't trust in them. Humbly enjoy them. Point two is eternal treasure and how to get some. So look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Paul continues and says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I love these verses. I believe that Paul has in mind those exact words of Jesus that we read earlier, where he said, don't store up for yourselves on treasures in in earth where moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Paul is telling you, this is how you get some. So those of you, if you have enough to share, And I think in one way or another, all of us have something to share, even if it's not money. If you have enough to share, be committed to being generous. Look for opportunities to do good works and to be ready to share. And Paul says, when you do that, you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You are not any poorer. Instead, you have created wealth in a place where you cannot lose it. One of the things that happens when when things like houses lose value or the stock market crashes, there's always something that we missed, right? There's always information that we didn't have, that if we had had it, oh, we could have avoided all this trouble. Right, like in 2008, it was it's the subprime mortgage lending crisis, and I understand that's controversial, and we can argue about it till the cows come home. But part of the problem was there were people who could not pay their bills who had received mortgages, and so Congress enacted a ton of laws to make sure that it's never going to happen again. And I can guarantee it'll probably happen again. It'll just happen for a different reason. There's always something that we miss. There's always information that we lack. But you know what? The Father in heaven never lacks information. God has never been surprised by a stock market crash. He has never lost value in a home. And when we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, they will never depreciate. Paul is saying, look, recognize there is a surer investment And Paul strongly condemns the ministers who preach, just give us a little money and you'll have treasure in heaven, and they're serving themselves. That's not what this is. There is a legitimate way to say, look, through your kindness and generosity and sharing with other people, and through your gifts to further the ministry of Jesus, you are taking worldly wealth that will pass away and converting it into heavenly wealth, which will never pass away. And Jesus adds, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So if you're the type of person to invest all of your energy and all of your money here on earth, Jesus is warning your heart is here on earth. Don't be that kind of person. You'll end up heartbroken when the things of this earth are ultimately destroyed. Instead, be the kind of person that enjoys God's good things And at the same time, has an eye on eternity where your investments will never fail. 
The ways to invest are by doing good works, being generous, ready to share. One of the things I love about our church is there are a lot of ways to do that, whether it's throwing a a pair of gloves on the mitten tree or whether it's purchasing Christmas presents for a family in our community that needs them or whether it's helping with a Thanksgiving meal. We are good at looking for opportunities to share with those in our church and in our community who are in need. And I believe that many of you do this very well. What I want to remind you of is why. Because the hope of heaven is secure. As we trust the Father is going to provide for us, that enables us to be radically generous. Because the temptation is, I'm going to be generous so long as it doesn't really cost me something. I can share this much and no more. But the Bible does teach a kind of generosity that's rooted in the truth that the Father will meet your needs so you can be generous with someone else. Generosity is not making sure you can do everything you want and then if you have anything left over, sharing that. Generosity is giving beyond what that little bit of leftover is. Because you know what happens to that little bit of leftover for me? I don't know if this has happened to you. It just seems like that little bit of leftover gets smaller and smaller. And you'd never have anything to share. Because if you're not intentional about sharing, you won't do it. Instead, learn to be generous. Be ready to share with the motivation that this is good for you. That it teaches you to have your heart rooted in heaven in the Father who loves you. That last phrase there in verse 19 He says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here's what I want to stress. The things that we do with our earthly wealth say a lot about our eternal life. The things we do with our earthly wealth say a lot about our eternal life. If your hope is in heaven, you don't care nearly as much about the things that you have on earth. And The more you give away and the more your heart becomes like Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, took on the form of a servant, and although he had the wealth of heaven, he made himself poor so that he could make others rich, the more you have that heart, the more you enjoy your eternal life now. The more you long for heaven now. See, we believe that you are saved when you trust the truth that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. But there's this weird phrase, taking hold of that which is truly life. Okay, And and I believe it's possible to be saved and to have a loose grip on that life. Do you know what I mean by that? It's possible to be saved and your sins are forgiven, but you have a loose grip on that life. Meaning, you're not going after the things of heaven. Most of your focus is here on earth. And it's easy to be distracted by the things of earth. Uh, Just this past week, my toilet blew up and I was very distracted by the things of earth. (laughs) I spent most of the week doing crazy serious repair that was worse than I thought it would be. And I believe that it's right and good to work to have a nice home that's sanitary and clean But to do that at the expense of spiritual life is to lose sight of the fact that there are toilets in heaven that don't break. Okay, I'm being a little bit silly, but I do want to stress the fact 
that I'm not trying to make this world unbreakable. I'm trying to make it nice and clean and livable, and I'm trying to put most of my life in a place where stuff won't break. Amen. And I want to encourage you to grab hold of that which is truly life with your generosity, and the more you practice this kind of generosity, the more you lay hold of that life. I'll give you an illustration that I think helps. So earlier in this series, we talked about deacons. And if you ever wonder, why would anyone want to volunteer in church? It's a good question to ask. Sometimes there's drama between different people that volunteer. Sometimes different ministries have little spats and bicker over goofy things. So the question, why would anybody volunteer? Well, Paul gives great motivation in chapter 3. He says, as for those who serve well as deacons, this is 3.13, they gain a good standing for themselves and also create confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. God wants you to have confidence in your eternal life. The more you live your faith, okay, so you pray the prayer, you believe Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, you're baptized. What do you do next if you've got 30, 40, 50 years before you die and go to heaven? Well, you put that faith in practice. The more you put that faith in practice, the more confidence you have. The more you put that faith in practice, the more you enjoy that life that is truly life now. The more you neglect that life, the less confidence you will have, the less joy you will have. And the passion of Scripture is to maximize your joy, not to badmouth riches, but to teach that real joy is in practicing generosity. Real joy enjoys God's good things while it looks to be a blessing to others. And so, friends, while there's truth that there are good and bad things in earthly riches, the goal of the Christian life is to have your heart so close to the Father's that automatically you have deep coffers in heaven because your life is lived with that eternal life flowing through you. Jesus says that when you have living water and you believe the gospel, out of your soul comes a life-giving stream. You become a life-giving person to the people around you. You become a generous person who is able to help others and bless them. The more that is true, the more confidence and joy you have right now. So this is not a message where I'm like, okay, you got to be more generous. If you're giving, give a little more, look for more. Like that's the complete wrong way to say this. Instead, it's to say, look, your hope is in Christ Jesus. If your hope is in Christ Jesus and you want to enjoy that confidence more and more, practice generosity. What do you do if you're broke? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. If you are broke and you have no money, Learn to be generous in other ways, like with time and with relationships. Be kind to the people around you. You can volunteer here. Volunteering is free. You can do that anytime you want. And so learning to be generous is something that applies to every person in the church. And the reason for it is that it increases your confidence and joy in the eternal life that you have as a gift. It's a life that transforms you. It's a life that takes the things of earth and makes them strangely dim. But it's also a life that enjoys those things. So let's do both. Now, the last two verses here, verse 20 and 21, you're like, man, he just totally changed the subject. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. So my final point this morning We've looked at earthly riches, good and bad. 
we've looked at eternal treasure and how to get some. Now, the last point this morning is an entrusted deposit and how to guard it. An entrusted deposit and how to guard it, okay? So, Christians have a deposit. They have a down payment on eternal life. The Bible uses this language to talk about how when you are saved, God gives you the Holy Spirit, and it's a down payment of the future joy that you have in Christ. You enjoy this life right now. Paul uses this language to say you have something precious and valuable now. Now guard this good deposit. Verse 20, O Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And he said, how does that have anything to do with earthly riches? Well, I'm going to take about two minutes and describe to you exactly what he's talking about. He's hinted at it in a couple of different places in this letter, but there is a very popular false teaching that has its start in Paul's days called Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of somebody say, oh, I'm an agnostic? Well, an agnostic is someone who says you can't know anything. Um, Ag, the A, just the A, means not. Gnostic means knowledge. So they're saying, uh, I think truth is out there, but I don't think we can know it. Well, that's an agnostic. A Gnostic is someone who says, I have the truth. And in this time, they believed that there were secret teachings that Jesus had given a few people. And if you did things just right, you could be let in on this secret knowledge. So that's what he's saying when he's, of what is falsely called knowledge or gnosis. So there's this group. It's like a private club. In fact, have you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? The Gospel of Thomas begins this way, how Jesus shared his private teachings with Thomas Didymus, and Thomas Didymus wrote them down. And there's like 114 goofy sayings, which are really weird, that Jesus did not say. And the Gnostics made stuff up. If you have questions about that, you're like, how do you know that's not legitimate? We can talk outside this message. But the, the question that we need to answer is, how does this false teaching, this falsely called knowledge, apply to earthly wealth? Well, you saw the same sort of hinting at it in chapter 4, when, when Paul says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Well, they believed that they had secret teaching that was very spiritual, and they believed that the earthly world that, that God had allowed to exist was actually evil. So spiritual stuff was good, earthly stuff was bad, and so they said, if you're really spiritual, you're not going to eat more than you absolutely have to. And you'll just have a bland, dry, boring diet, and you're just going to exist until your, your soul leaves your body. And that's really a good thing because your body's not a good thing either. And many of us who experience, be careful, experience aches and pains. I have some aches and pains, okay? I'm 37. I have a few. Um, as you experience aches and pains and your body fails, that's not hard to believe. The body's a frustrating thing. It breaks just like my house does. And so Gnostics would come along and say, oh, yeah, that's it's just a sign that all of this stuff is evil. If you're really spiritual, you're not going to have, uh, you're not going to be married. Marriage is also evil. Uh, they also taught that, that all women were evil. Uh, it's, the Gnostics are not early feminists. They're just not, even though Da Vinci Code taught that they were. Uh, the Gnostics are really crazy. And they don't base their teachings in the historical teachings of Christ. 
The apostles openly and loudly proclaim the teachings of Christ. The Gnostics say that they're hidden and it's falsely called knowledge, but everybody likes a secret. And if you become part of an in crowd and a clique and you're like, oh, now I have the secret of knowledge. This is a really motivating thing that feeds a kind of arrogance in your soul. And he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you and avoid irreverent babble. It's very irreverent to make something up and attribute it to God. It's very irreverent to say this is what's true when it's not from the word of God and God himself has not said it. That makes you a liar and it makes you arrogant enough that you think you can stand in for God. And he's telling Timothy, don't be led astray by this. As they criticize God's good gifts and tell you that you can't have nice stuff, and as they criticize God's good gifts and tell you that you can't be married, don't be deceived by it. There are many people that think super spiritual holy people are like the monks in the wilderness, that we, we need to not maybe all be like them, but we should revere them and feel like they have a special connection with God. Christianity doesn't teach that at all. Christianity teaches that we have one great high priest, Jesus Christ, and that all of us have access to the Father through him. And that truly spiritual people enjoy God's good gifts as God changes them from the inside out to be generous and kind and to share. So it matters that Timothy is guarding this precious deposit of grace, this precious truth that God loves you and that God has forgiven your sins in Christ if you have trusted in Christ. And do not teach that God's good gifts are then evil or that good Christians don't eat or drink or get married. Instead, recognize these things matter deeply for your soul. He says, guard the deposit. Some of that means he would have named names and called out false teachers in the church, said, look, that's flat out a lie. So-and-so says he's got a secret saying of Jesus that teaches that women are going to become men in heaven. It's from the Gospel of Thomas. I didn't make that up. It's a lie. And guarding the truth means that you need to be willing to call out lies when they are pervasive in the church. And part of faithful ministry is being willing to gently and patiently and kindly be contrary. When false teaching comes in, faithful ministers say, that's false. Faithful ministers go back to the word and say, what does the Bible say? And so friends, as we look at this book and as we think about the temptations of the world, one of the things that we have to go back to again and again is guarding this good deposit of grace and passionately defending the truth that God has given us in his word. I don't believe that we should ever compromise on what the word clearly says. There's danger in swerving from the truth. There's danger in contradicting the word of God. He says, verse 21, by professing this false knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. And I believe when you abandon the word of God, you always hurt yourself and you always hurt the church. So whatever it is, we need to go back to the word again and again. The metaphor of treasure throughout this, me this message, treasure is precious. It's worth guarding. We build banks with vaults to guard our treasure. 
Some of you have safes in your home to guard your treasure. Some of you have alarm systems to guard your treasure. Well, the treasure of the church is the truth of Jesus. And sometimes you need to guard it and defend it. Sometimes the threat of someone breaking in and stealing that truth is real and it's frightening and it's painful. But a faithful guard goes back to the word and says, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? And again and again, we want to be faithful to this truth that is in this book. So what do we do with this? Well, number one, I would ask you, is your hope in heaven now? Are you trusting that the Lord Jesus has died for your sins and been raised to life? Are you believing that he has offered you that life? You know, when I was in high school, I... I wanted to work, but because of goofy laws and child labor laws, you know, like you could cut grass, you could be a golf caddy, but I'm not a very good golf caddy. I never was and never will be. And so I was always looking for work, but the only thing I could do, I worked for Farmer Nick for a couple of years because you, you could legitimately go get a job with a farmer. But when I tried to get jobs around town, it's, no, you're too young, kid. You're too young. We, won't let, we don't hire kids that young. And so I had a desire to work, but not a lot of opportunity to work. And so wanting to do this uh, led to kind of a lot of frustration and missed opportunities. And ultimately, I did get a job, but, but it was difficult. And I wanted to enjoy some good stuff, but I couldn't. And here's what I want to say with this is we need to enjoy the good things of life and to share with those who lack stuff And we need to do some good things that demonstrate the hope of heaven. But ultimately, we need to recognize that the the good things of earth matter less than the things of heaven. So when I worked for Farmer Nick, uh, one of the things that he really wanted us to do was he wanted us to work seven days a week. Um, And this was a little bit of a challenge because, number one, my parents wouldn't let me. And number two, I felt like the things of heaven mattered more than the things of earth. So while I wanted to have a job, the only job that I could have, my boss said, I really want you here on Sundays. And so I said, man, I I can't work Sundays. I I won't work Sundays. And he said, well, if you work Sundays, I'll give you a $50 bonus at the end of the season because I need you. And I said, man, I can't do it. Like, I'm just, I'm going to miss out on 50 bucks. And in fact, when he hired me, I I wasn't even sure he was going to give me a job because I told him no on this thing that he said was non-negotiable. And in spite of that, I worked for a couple days. I think he was happy with my work because he let me stay on even though I never worked a Sunday. And at the end of the season, I never expected 50 bucks because I didn't do the thing that he asked. But he actually said, no, you actually worked harder than a lot of the other people. Uh, He said he hired me. I talked to him years later. He said, the reason that I hired you was you were a scrawny little kid. And I said, well, how are you going to haul giant wheelbarrows full of huge pumpkins? And I said, well, if I can't lift it, I'll, I'll haul the biggest load that I can and I'll run and make a second trip. And he said, all right, man, you're hired. Um, I took a risk in not doing what he wanted, even though I wanted to enjoy good earthly things. And the Lord blessed me and the Lord gave him a generous heart to say, man, this kid's hardworking and I'm not going to punish him for going to church on Sundays. And I want to say that 
demonstrates the right perspective that even if I don't get the job, who cares? The Lord will provide. I'm going to do what's right and trust that the heavenly stuff matters more than the earthly stuff. So as you trust in the Lord for your salvation, get this priority right in your life. Enjoy some good food at Christmas time. Enjoy some good things in your life. Do some good works that will invest in heaven rather than on earth and guard this deposit. Recognize that the grace that God has given us to save us is active in our lives, teaching us to obey this good news. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a generous, joyful Father, and we want to acknowledge that and praise you for your generosity in our lives, that although our sins were many, in your mercy, you forgave them. Lord, although we were poor, Christ made himself poor to make us rich. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the confidence and hope of heaven and the joy that comes from being generous. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.